Why should a child be afraid to go to school? It was almost like catnip for, for TV producers. They could just go to Boston or these other cities, put their cameras on white protesters, and that became the image that got seared in the minds of American viewers. The Black community was furious that, um, that it was a coordinated effort to disenfranchise them and sort of steal back political power. There was definitely resentment. And so is, is that racist? The real story is overshadowed by sort of a mythical oversimplification. This is Disintegration, a podcast looking back at one of the most painful chapters in Boston's history, the desegregation of Boston public schools in the 1970s. I'm Jesse Remedios. And I'm Valerie Wences. We'll also take a look at where Boston is today, how much has the city changed in the past five decades? Or does it deserve its reputation as one of the most racist cities in America? I grew up taking field trips to the Museum of Fine Art in Boston and historic sites in Concord and Lexington. But what we didn't see were many statues or monuments honoring Black Bostonians. Even worse, some of the public art we do have is offensive to Native Americans, African Americans, and other people of color. In this episode, our colleague Melissa Allen looks at what is being done to change the public face of Boston. I'm outside the visitor center on Boston Common, the very start of Boston's Freedom Trail a walking tour that takes curious residents and explorers to the city's historic locations, to the site of the Boston Massacre, where colonists lost their lives in the name of independence, and the Old Corner Bookstore, a cozy reading shop in Boston's oldest retail building. This trail also leads to Faneuil Hall, a building that currently hosts a collection of tourist shops and convenient public restrooms in the basement. It was once a breeding ground for the American Revolution, a place where people came to protest the British reign and what some even call the birthing ground of free speech as we know it today. But for Kevin Peterson, the founder and director of the New Democracy Coalition, all of this is irrelevant. What matters to him? is the name. Peter Faneuil, of whom the name was, the hall was named, was a slave owner and a white supremacist. Peterson is working on anti-racist efforts in Boston and trying to change the culture of racism that has been a constant in the city. This means addressing names like Peter Faneuil and removing them to take away their power. When we change the name of Faneuil Hall, we are saying that we need to open up the, a citywide dialogue around structural racism in terms, in terms of how it's reflected in healthcare or public education or the income inequality gap between whites and blacks in the city. So we use Faneuil Hall, that name changing, as a way to begin deeper conversations around the racial inequality in the city of Boston. Peterson's group, New Democracy Coalition, is all about reparations finding a way to make amends for past wrongdoing. In the context of slavery, that means taking on some of the country's founders. He sees Faneuil Hall as a first step to repairing Boston, to help the city heal. 
Reparations is one way the government can take action to make amends to people of color, but Peterson argues there is so much more that goes into changing the culture of a city. One thing that we're clear about is that um, prior to any reparations, there must be a public apology. So the city of Boston had, was complicit in the, um, in the transatlantic slave trade. A public apology is a start, but understanding Boston's history is also essential. And not just the colonial history centered primarily on white men. Limerchi Frazier is the Director of Education and Interpretation for the Museum of African American History in Boston and Nantucket. I spoke with Frazier over Zoom. Boston's history of slavery begins in 1638, and legally it is um, advanced by the Body of Liberties in 1641, making Massachusetts the first colony in America to adopt slavery legally. She also told me Boston is the first state to have institutionalized slavery. She called it a founding city and said that makes it all the more important to highlight hidden stories, narratives from people who didn't always have a voice. It is pleasing to be able to have an institution like the Museum of African American History to give us evidence, to give us close read, to help us understand what these documents and the evidence of them means to us and what can we glean to be better. Before Frazier began her work with the Museum of African American History, there was Sue Bailey Thurman, who not only created Boston's museum in 1963, but instituted a new trail to tell the Black experience in Boston, places that are largely neglected on the traditional Freedom Trail. This Black Heritage Trail brings visitors to 14 sites, including the African Meeting House, which holds the museum. So it is different from the Freedom Trail that you see so advertised. It's a very different organization altogether. And we have not been significantly significantly included in Boston's Freedom Trail because there are also economic drivers for tours. Tracing history has not been free. Recognizing Black spaces is free. The trail starts with a monument across from the State House. It is a memorial to Robert Gould Shaw, a young white officer during the Civil War, and the 54th Regiment, the troop of all Black soldiers he led. There is also the Phillips School, one of the first interracial schools in Boston, and houses owned by prominent Black figures. Frazier said founder Sue Bailey Thurman saw the necessity for Black representation and historical consciousness in Boston with the creation of the Black Heritage Trail and the museum. We have to make our own voice. We have to have a vehicle by which the the people who we want to highlight are highlighted properly. So not giving it over to another Um, entity to speak for us. She likened this idea to FUBU, which I had never heard of before. Thankfully, she explained it for me. For us, by us, as uh, that was a clothing line that LL Cool J came up with. But it is very applicable here that most people who tell their history tell their history, 
themselves. Frazier was really good at explaining things for me. She took the time to walk me through so much of Boston and the museum's history, but she also spoke to me about the future. I made the mistake of talking about inclusivity, or rather, I asked the wrong question, how Boston could be more inclusive. She corrected me. Inclusive means that someone else is uh, planning the party. (laughs) And you are to be included or invited to the table. I had never thought of racial equity this way before. It had never occurred to me that the language we use to describe the very harm we are trying to erase might do more harm in and of itself. She said the table should not be invitation only. Rather than assuming white policymakers must invite oppressed voices to lead change, voices that are oppressed need to be at the head of the table from the start. We need a new plan and not a plan that has been provided by those who are in power and in their attempt to maintain their status quo will always protect that. Addressing the city's history is only one of the many ways Boston is dealing with its reputation as a racist city. Public art is another, which the city has tried to do, particularly since widespread protests for racial equity following the murder of George Floyd in May 2020. The Christopher Columbus statue, which stood in Boston's North End from 1979 until June 2020, when Christopher, well, lost his head. Then-Mayor Marty Walsh removed the statue from public viewing after the beheading by anti-racist protesters, and it has since been in storage. Then there was the removal of the Emancipation statue, which had its home in Boston's Park Square from 1879 until its removal in June 2020. It depicted Abraham Lincoln standing above a kneeling slave, the former president's hand resting above the bowed slave's head. Karen Goodfellow, Boston's director of public art, said the emancipation statue was causing harm, and so they chose to remove it from the city's collection. This choice is part of a process known as deaccessioning, where statues might be relocated or put in storage. Goodfellow says art on display does not need to be permanent, a new concept for her team. Started using the term long term. It might seem like a small distinction, but for the city, it means so much more. I think there's a a false sense of permanence and a false sense of the way history is taught and understood and told um, through our public art. And we've been looking not just at how we're commissioning artworks, but how we're telling the stories of those artworks, how we're engaging people in decisions around that artwork and how we are, um, you know, really trying to revisit our policies and processes for that as well and make sure that we're attending to the the demands and and needs of the people we're, we're serving. Change is gradual, though. Removing every controversial art piece or monument from public view is not an immediate option. Goodfellow said these decisions to move or otherwise tamper with longstanding public art are not taken lightly. It is not simply about this artwork is is perfect or this artwork is so terrible and everything associated with terrible i think these are very complex historical objects and i think 
you know, w- one of the more compelling reasons to keep them around is to study them, even when they are harmful, and to say, you know, this happened, these harms happened in the past, and we need to keep talking about them. We can't just hide them. Goodfellow recognized that not every piece can be kept because some are too harmful or might contribute to miseducation. The city is also bringing in new voices and artists. Right now, the artist pool is nearly 80% white. Goodfellow will be bringing in new art from those with diverse backgrounds by offering artist grants. When our artworks are, are diverse in terms of who is, who is creating them, the stories that are being told, they are reflecting a more holistic version of ourselves and more true version of ourselves as, as people and as a community. And I think that makes for, for a healthier, healthier city. Change can be difficult, and not everyone is on board with the evolving face of the city. But Boston's been around for nearly 400 years, and it will be a work in progress for years to come. episode was produced by our colleague Melissa Ellen. This integration is a production of Podcasting 101 at Boston University's College of Communication. I'm Valerie Wences. And I'm Jesse Remedios. Thanks for listening.